Many moons ago, when the world was young and heroes walked the earth, there was born the History Podcast. And in this world, there was the Beeb. There was Lars Brownworth and a bloke called Mike Duncan, and we heard Mike and knew he was good. And so was spawned a new generation, wherein I was inspired by Robin Pearson, who picked up the mantle of the Roman Empire in Byzantium. Robin, I'm glad to say, is still going strong, is still producing magnificent history and entertainment, and here is a message from him. Hello everyone, this is Robin Pearson from the History of Byzantium podcast. It seems like you enjoy your history recounted to you by an erudite, funny Englishman. Well, I am also an Englishman. And if you like a bit of Roman history, then come join me for a thousand-year epic of incredible highs and devastating lows. Check out The History of Byzantium wherever you get your podcasts, or go to thehistoryofbyzantium.com. For now, back to David. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hello everyone and welcome to the History of England, episode 241, The Illness of King Henry. Please forgive me for starting this week's episode by asking you to consider becoming a member of the History of England. It's dead easy to do, just go to thehistoryofengland.com forward slash become a member. You immediately get access to 26 hours worth of podcasts from me, everything from diplomacy, wills, biographies, nationalism and a complete history of Scotland. We've just reached the 12th century. The wars of independence loom ahead of us. You get over 90 minutes of new podcasts each month, transcripts and quizzes and it's as cheap as chips. You might reflect that by so doing you're also supporting the Free History of England podcast, though honestly I suspect I'll keep doing that come fire or indeed, even worse, white horses. Promise me you'll think about it anyway. And remember, thehistoryofengland.com forward slash become a member. Meanwhile, Agora Podcast of the Month is a great biography podcast by a man of wit and intelligence, Tom Daly. It's called American Biography and it's an exploration of the history of the United States told through the lives of influential individuals who helped shape it, but are perhaps not as well remembered as they should be. You can find the website at americanbiography.webs.com. Go and give it a go. We've been a little distracted from the main story, have we not, over the last couple of episodes, and I'd like to apologise for that, but I'd also like to extend that tradition for a little while longer, if I may, because I think the time has come, as the walrus said, to talk of many things of shoes and ships and sealing wax and of Henry's health facts. It's a favourite, favourite topic, is it not? Seriously, there is so much talk out there about Henry's waistline, even Ian Botham would have been envious. But by 1539, the king's health physical and mental, was indeed becoming something of an issue. 
and the King's health would probably have a direct and significant impact on politics and the future of England. And so, as the newspapers say, it's surely in the public interest. Not just purient intrusion into people's private lives to increase sales. No, 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 no. So, all the discussion about Henry and his health sits against the backdrop of his later years. I mean, there's a basic thing about the fact that his chest slipped a bit and he put on the odd pound. Well, quite a few pounds, actually. But mainly the idea is that maybe there's some medical explanation for the fact that during the last eight or nine years of his reign, he could be described as mm, a little irritable. Or, as some might say, he's a little bit of a blood-soaked tyrant. And then there's also all that trouble he had getting hold of an heir. It's worth putting it very briefly in the context of the level of medical knowledge of the time, something I must do properly sometime. But for now, just to reflect that if you fell ill, if the disease didn't kill you, then the physicians probably would. There are lots of articles about how patronising we are about Tudor medical knowledge, and that really they were much better than we think. And I'm sorry about that, but really, there were significant gaps in their knowledge, shall we say. This led me to find out a fact of which I was completely ignorant, which is that in 1518 it was Henry who granted a charter to the College of Physicians, later to become the Royal College of Physicians, still going strong today. Their core mission is to improve the quality of medicine through the accreditation of those entering the medical profession, and they are celebrating their 500th anniversary this year. Happy birthday, College of Physicians. It is deeply appropriate, of course, since Henry was somewhat sensitive about his health. The best way to get him out of London was to shout sweating sickness and he'd be gone, being mighty careful to avoid even Anne Boleyn, the love of his life, to make sure he didn't catch the lurgy. On his famous summer progresses, riders would be sent out days ahead to make sure there'd be no plagues or epidemics, and if there had, the route would be changed, as it was in 1535, actually, around Bristol. However, it has been pointed out to me by Saoirse that I have to be a bit careful. It's too hard, actually, to describe Henry as a hypochondriac, since although he gets the best medical care, avoiding plague and sweating sickness could hardly be described as a hypochondria. His fear was not without foundation. And while I'm responding to comments on the website, completely unconnected, congratulations to Elaine for spotting the Joseph reference. A lot of careful thought goes into diagnosing the various illnesses and epidemics in days medieval and Tudor, but it's always worth issuing a general warning. The theories are necessarily advanced without full information being available, but more fundamentally, that the very diseases themselves may simply not exist in the modern day, or may have mutated beyond recognition. But that said, the big killers at the time about which Henry really panicked were twofold. There was the sweating sickness, a kind of viral pneumonia probably, which had epidemics in 1485, 1508, 1517, 1528 and 1551. And these epidemics were substantial, so 50 died each day in London in the 1528 outbreak, which probably also carried off Thomas Cromwell's wife and daughters. And then there's our old friend, the good old bubonic plague, still firmly around with epidemics in 1509 to 10, 1516, 1527 to 30, 1532 and 1544 to 1546. There were plenty of other killers around. Tuberculosis, which probably killed quite a few Tudors, Henry VII, probably Prince Arthur, Henry Fitzroy and Edward VI. Malaria was around called tertiary fever, and there was typhus, sometimes called jail fever, and caused by lice living on humans. Are we enjoying this list of pain? 
dysentery, referred to as the bloody flux or camp fever on campaign, and did for Henry V, of course. The first epidemic of flu was in 1510, and then there was smallpox. They tell me that just because you're paranoid doesn't mean they're not out to get you, and so it seems to be in Henry's case. Despite his excellent medical care, in 1513 he seems to have contracted smallpox, and for a while his life was thought to be at risk. In 1521 and 1528 he had bouts of malaria. Up to 1536 he had a couple of nasty mishaps, caused by a lot of running around and generally being a sporty type. A lance in the face from his mate Charlie Brandon, face stuck in the mud, running after a hunt, a story I've always thought a bit suspect. But really, the serious medical history, in so much as it didn't actually begin before his birth, starts in 1536. Anne was pregnant, Henry was jousting, and he had a bad fall, and was unconscious for two hours, or more worryingly, maybe actually he was just without speech for two hours. People were seriously beginning to consider sidling up to Mary and saying how much they really liked her, that they'd always preferred Catherine, and would she like to see them jump at all, because actually they're able to jump quite high, would she like to see? But Henry recovered though there's a suspicion that maybe it left a legacy. And you do have to wonder about the impact of that fall. So I had a colleague at work who fell off a ladder. and Before the fall, they always used to laugh at my jokes. Afterwards, he stopped. I have been told there are other possible explanations for that, actually. But you know, got to think. But also, he badly hurt his leg during the joust, and the leg didn't heal very well. Indeed, the royal peg seems to have turned ulcerous. Now, this is a bad thing of itself, but also a formerly very active man, always zipping about, using up the calories, suddenly no longer could. It was recorded that the king grows seldom abroad because his leg is something sore. So the king began to put on weight and was grumpy. Because of his armour, we know quite a bit about Henry's size, and we know that up until 1536, he'd put on only two inches round his waist, so that by the age of 44, he had just a 35-inch waist. Blimey, O'Reilly, that's pretty good for a tall man, six foot four inches and all. Just five years later, in 1541, he has a 50-inch waist, and will end up with a 54-inch waist, and his chest has probably gone the same way to 57 inches. By the time of his death, He was probably around 28 stones in weight, 177 kilos. He's a big lad. It couldn't and didn't go without notice. One contemporary wrote, The king was so stout that such a man has never been seen. Three of the biggest men that could be found could get inside his doublet. That's a great quote. There's got to be some exaggeration in that. Come on, three big men. But we can also see that Henry was taking the Demise Roussos approach of wearing very loose-fitting clothing to try and hide his growing weight. In the finest tradition of courtly sycophancy, his courtiers started doing the same thing, wearing several layers of heavy clothing to bulk up in sympathy. Also, the king's hair was thinning. I've always wondered why thinning hair is a problem. I dream of a receding hairline. There are things living in my barnet that have been lost to science for centuries, but Henry started wearing a bonnet to hide it. And so his courtiers did so too. Seriously, did they have no shame? Now, normally, someone somewhere faced with this kind of increase in weight would mutter something about the lad being on the pies. And in Henry's case, they would not be far from the truth. Because Henry's appetite was prodigious. His love of red meat was prodigious too. 
Now, one of the myths you can consign to the dustbin of history is Charlie Lawton's chucking of chicken bones onto the floor of the vulgar and coarse king tearing at food with the grease running down his chin. There's every reason to suppose that Henry was more than usually good-mannered. Very often, he would prefer to eat in his private chambers, as it happens, rather than feasting with the court, and his servants would come round offering plates of various courses. And it's not that he wouldn't eat vegetables and things, although, at the time, veggies were not considered particularly good for you, prone to make you sad and give you wind, apparently. But nonetheless, maybe that'd be a first course. After that, he'd plough into all manner of birds, including things like gannet and swan, and then the red stuff, beef and oxen, lamb, black pudding. There'd be a lot of fish, along with bread and ale but Henry was particularly keen on red wine, which meant a lot of visits to the clothes stall, as it were, the loo, toilet, going to see a man about a dog, whatever phrase you use, and also it gave him a tendency to be dehydrated. It's a diet that had an impact, and I'm going to get graphic here, so if you don't want to hear about enemas, turn away now. The diet gave Henry bad and painful constipation, so once again it meant many long visits to the clothes stall, along with one of his two gentlemen, in particular his grooms of the stool. From 1536 to 1546, this was a man called Thomas Hennage. And as we've seen, his proximity and access to the king gave him considerable power and influence. But in fact, by 1539, Hennage's influence appeared to be waning, probably because he was wanting actually to retire back to Lincolnshire. The coming guy was the much younger man supposed to be his deputy, one Anthony Denny, who was 38 in 1539. Denny it was who came to head the Privy Chamber and control the chamber finances from the early 1540s, who was at Henry's side as he reacted to his new bride Anne of Cleves and would have a very significant role at the time of his master's death. He also happened to be a client of Thomas Cromwell's. However, and this brings us to the graphic bit, It was Thomas Hennage who reported to Thomas Cromwell in 1539 that the king had a real problem with a severe bout of constipation, and so the physicians were called. They prescribed an enema, a pig's bladder with a greased metal tube fixed in it, which was inserted into the king's anus. The pig's bladder contained a pint of a solution of salt and herbs. It would stay so inserted for two hours. Sounds hideous. But apparently it worked. Henry retired to bed and, as Hennage reported, slept until two of the clock in the morning, and then his grace rose to go to the stool, which had a very fair siege. Well, glory be. Though the recurring problem led to piles, for which rhubarb was prescribed. Rhubarb, as it happens, would be a constant companion for Henry, since it was also agreed to be a good treatment for the choleric condition from which the king was supposed to be suffering more generally. The more serious problem by 1540 was his leg ulcer. It could well be that the jousting accident in 1536 had dislodged pieces of bone, and these led to open, seeping and often smelly leg ulcers. In 1538, there was another very nasty scare. The ulcers were constantly trying to heal up, you see, and in 1538 they apparently managed it, and the result turned out to be worse. For 10 or 12 days, the humours, which had no outlet, were like to have stifled him, so that he was some time without speaking. Henry was reported to be black in the face and in great danger, and it could be that a blood clot had reached a lung. Arguments about whether it was Mary or Elizabeth who should succeed him were breaking out all over court, 
before the king miraculously recovered. By the time Henry met Anne of Cleves then, he was fat and suffering. But it would get worse through his reign. For the sake of completeness, I'm going to carry on and ignore where we are in time. Henry was in constant pain, or at least discomfort, from here on with less and less exercise going on. His leg ulcer had to be regularly treated and drained, which was sore. And he was rarely without his gold-topped staff, along with some handy accessories, actually, such as a pomander, or one which had an ink pot and pen in it. Later on, from 1545, as he slid towards his death in 1547, and during his marriage to Catherine Parr, he was so fat and immobile that he was transported around his palaces on chairs called trams, an early form of wheelchair, basically. Edward Hall recorded that he could not get up or downstairs unless he was raised up or let down by engine. This was probably some sort of pulley or hoist. He also, incidentally, came to wear spectacles, which is something I did not know. They were called gazings and were clipped to his nose. More seriously, though, the image of the king in his last years after the execution of his penultimate wife, Catherine Howard, in 1542, is of an increasingly paranoid and reclusive king. It was noted how rarely he came from his private chambers to mix with his courtiers. He was irascible, changeable, moody, and in a man quite clearly prepared to execute at the drop of a bonnet, this was a dangerous attribute. For such people, comatose is a much more comfortable condition for the rest of us. Here's a quote from 1541, when once again the ulcer closed up, and it shows not just a physical worry that people had, but how folks worried about his behaviour. The king's life was really thought in danger, not from the fever, but from the leg, which often troubles him because he's very stout and marvellously excessive in eating and drinking, so that people worth a credit say he is often of a different opinion in the morning than after dinner. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. And a change of character in his reign after 1536 has been the subject of debate. Folks have marvelled at the transformation of the dashing Renaissance prince in all his physical and mental glory into a man who appears to be physically moribund and the very template of a suspicious, murderous autocrat, ready at any moment to lash out with his blood-soaked claws and rip out the exposed white throat of a young, innocent courtier who came to his side purely to serve his prince. I'm exaggerating for effect, of course, but you know what I mean. It might well be that you really don't need to look far to explain all of this. You might partly put it down to exaggeration. Yes, Henry did withdraw, but he was feeling poorly and old most of the time. Most of us would be tempted by the thought of staying indoors with a bun and a nice cup of tea rather than having to pretend to be full of life and friendly to everyone in the presence chamber. Yes, Henry did become changeable and suspicious, but he was dealing with a superbly complicated religious and political situation. Bert Sachs' explanations are, of course, a little dull, and there's no doubt that there is a massive contrast between the man of the 1540s and the man of the 1510s and 20s. And, of course, 
there is that other medical consideration, the history of his difficulty in producing an heir with all his wives, particularly, of course, with Catherine of Aragon and Anne Boleyn, both of whom have multiple miscarriages. It does seem a little extreme, though again, Tudor hygiene might go some way to explain the whole thing. But there are other theories. Syphilis used to be a popular one. His ulcer of 1527 to 8 could have been a broken down growth, which is a symptom of tertiary syphilis. The disease can cause miscarriages and stillbirths. But everyone I have read discounts the idea these days. There seems to be none of the hideous side effects reported on the treatment of the day by mercury or any sign in the records of this substance being ordered. And nor is there any sign of syphilis in Henry's descendants, which apparently would be likely, if not inevitable. So it's the long grass for syphilis. Next theory up is Cushing's syndrome. This is a hormonal abnormality, very rare. Its symptoms include gross obesity in the body trunk, increased fat around the neck, a moon face, buffalo hump to the back. People with Cushing's can be irritable, easily depressed. They can suffer from anxiety, insomnia and sudden mood swings. And in 20% of cases, they may even become psychotic, exhibiting paranoia that drives a deep suspicion of everyone around them. They can be quarrelsome, unnaturally aggressive and become emotionally detached from loved ones or those close to them. It can also cause impotence, and there is more than a suggestion that Henry suffered from impotence later in life, partly encouraged, I think, by the enthusiasm with which he announced that he still had nightly emissions. I think that, by the way, is as high as I can turn the U factor. The idea is that in the 1530s, Henry fell prey to the disease, and that this accounts for the dramatic change in his character and physical appearance. And it's a theory that does have much to commend it, have a look at Cornelius Metz's picture and compare it with the earlier pictures to confirm Henry's physical change. There's little doubt Henry had become hugely fat. But the theory plays also to the extraordinary ease with which Henry ordered those closest to him killed, while showing absolutely no sign of it to the victim. Anne Boleyn, obviously, but in a funny kind of way, Henry Norris is almost as shocking. Given the interest in type 2 diabetes these days, it's not surprising that this has also been suggested for Henry. And you've got to think it's highly likely, do you not? It would explain the enormous appetite and thirst. Plus, apparently, diabetes prevents effective healing. However, if we are now engaged in the search for a grand unified theory, it would not explain the problem of producing an heir. In the search for the grand unified theory, in 2010, Katrina Whitley and Kyra Kramer published a paper with a new idea, that it could all be solved by a series of unfortunate medical events and coincidences or more specifically, two conditions working together. The first was blood type. The idea was that along with 9% of the population, Henry could have been blood type Kell positive. The way this works is that if a Kell positive man impregnates a Kell negative woman, the first pregnancy should be fine, but then afterwards the mother's body produces antibodies that causes subsequent fetuses to abort. This was then combined with McLeod syndrome, a rare genetic disorder which affects only men and usually sets in around age 40, with symptoms including heart disease, movement disorders and major psychological symptoms including paranoia and mental decline. I read a paper analysing the theory which concluded that the Kell positive could well have come from Jacquetta Woodville. Jacquetta's curse, they called it. But there is an obvious problem, that Mary... Catherine of Aragon's surviving child was not the first child. And their paper didn't support the idea of the MacLeod syndrome. And anyway, two very rare conditions at the same time? 
Probability theory was never a personal strength, but mathematically speaking, doesn't very unlikely times very unlikely equal frankly forget it? Enough, I think. You pays your money and takes your choice, and it's a fun game, but I would reflect two things. Firstly, there's no way ever of resolving the theories, unless possibly we dig Henry up and test his DNA. Secondly, it seems to me that in common with most conspiracy-type theories, there are perfectly reasonable common or garden explanations available, so why not take those, however dull? It seems to me that Henry's cruelty and ability to snuff out life in the interest of what he considered best was present from the day he had Empsom and Dudley killed. And in this attribute, he has good company, namely a reasonable percentage of the leaders of the Western world before 1600 to pick an arbitrary date. And it seems to me that Henry did everything to himself to cause his condition, a well-attested and evidenced diet that amounted to self-harm and suicide. He got extremely fat because he took no exercise and ate like a maniac. He behaved unpredictably and sometimes aggressively and angrily, and hey presto, he was in pain most of the time, which can do that to you. And I think that the idea that his worsening relationship with his people, the pain of the Reformation, the response to his divorce, all of that ate at his self-image of the happy Renaissance prince, the dream of golden youth, gone. And that must have had an impact. Anyway, it's a fun game, but the main point to hold on to from all of this is that by 1540, Henry was unfit and in pretty much constant pain. Now then, when Edward was born, it finally took the pressure off Henry's desperate search for a male heir. Not that anyone thought that was the end of it. A spare would be very handy. But, you know, the pressure was not quite the same as it had been. And it's a couple of years after the death of Jane Seymour before Henry married again. So, it's easy to get the impression that everyone just breathed a deep sigh of relief and took a break from the marriage market thing for a while. Not a bit of it. Actually, the search for a replacement started straight after Jane's death. But in the same way that Henry's younger daughter Elizabeth would ruthlessly play the marriage market for every possible diplomatic advantage, Henry now had the leisure to do the same. Unfortunately, of course, he was less of a catch than he used to be, mid-forties, putting on the pounds, and with a reputation for being more than a little hard on wives. In the first flush... Henry dithered between marrying to cement a French alliance or an imperialist one. One front-runner, as far as Henry was concerned, was Mary of Guise. So in February 1538, Holbein was sent off to paint a picture. Holbein, I have to tell you, in painting potential wives for Henry, could have got himself a platinum travel card. With more whore smiles than you could wish for if such a thing were possible back then, he went rushing all over northern Europe, chasing eligible women for to paint for Henry. The 16-year-old Christina of Denmark was one of those, and for a while Henry was convinced that this was the one. Christina was less keen. For her counsel suspecteth that her great-aunt was poisoned, that the second was put to death, and the third lost for lack of keeping her child bed. And anyway, Christina was related to Charles V, was well within the degrees of affinity, and therefore the marriage would need special dispensation from... Mm, the Bishop of Rome, possibly, and that could just possibly, perhaps, maybe, prove a problem. Then, Mary of Guise went and married the Scottish king. But never mind, there were two other female members of the Guise family, Louise and René. And then no less than three other French women were suggested by Francis I, so that poor old Holbein was rushing up and down France with his pants and his easel, robes probably flapping around his knees as he panted after another horrified French noblewoman. Let me plaint you, please! It all gets a bit like a sketch show, if you'll pardon the pun. 
The French complained that Henry was trying to drive far too hard a bargain. But then, hey, that's what happens in a negotiation, I guess. And at one stage, Henry suggested that all of these ladies be brought to Calais so that he could look at them all. This was enough for the exasperated French ambassador. Would the knights of the round table have treated their womenfolk like this? He asked. And Henry apparently had just enough good feeling left to blush. Francis I was equally acidic. It was not the French custom to send damsels of good houses to be passed in front of his eyes like horses for sale. Possibly adding, you English pig dog. But that could have been added by a later chronicler, it has to be said. All of this was then blown out of the water in 1538 and 9 by the deal between Charles V and Francis I that left England diplomatically isolated. Suddenly, the options dried up, much to the relief of the women concerned, I imagine. This rather left the evangelical German princes as the only group who might now be interested, and Henry never seems to have considered an English bride at this point. Such a choice would always produce, of course, complications at court, though that wouldn't stop him, and was not the normal approach for English kings who had historically used marriage as part of the process of diplomacy as well as of producing heirs. Anyway, Cromwell had made sure that diplomatic feelers had been going on with a group of Lutheran German princes called the Schmalkaldic League. But they hadn't gone very well. It depends on your perspective, really. You might either think that the League had been rather precious about demanding England sign up to the Lutheran Augsburg Confession, or that Henry was rather cavalier about the religious implications of a marriage. Cromwell had so far been thwarted in his attempt to bring about an alliance with the German princes, now that his favoured imperial route appeared to be stymied. So into this story, then, entered the Duchy of Cleves. The idea of a potential relationship had been floated as early as June 1538, and in January 1539 it was raised again. And now, given that the Habsburg and Valois were not at home to Mr and Mrs Marriage's proposal, it was much more interesting. Cleves is a substantial duchy on the Lower Rhine, which also had claims to Gelderland, which, if it managed to make stick, would be quite a thing, since it would have created a substantial territory with access now to the North Sea. Its duke was not actually a Lutheran, he was more of an Erasmian reformer, but at least he was broadly speaking in the reformist camp, and therefore willing, for the price of one shilling, to risk the ire of the emperor. And he had two unmarried daughters, Amelia, who was 22, and Anne, who was 24. Then the Duke died, to be succeeded by his son William, who was also a reformer and much keener than his father on an English match. Here was Cromwell's chance, and discussions were duly started in earnest in 1539 about whether it would be Anne or Amelia who was to be the lucky winner. An instruction from Henry to his envoy Christopher Mont actually made it clear at this point that Henry had already made up his mind, long before any portraits were sent back, that it would be one of them. Nobody could cleave him from the idea now. Ha! Cromwell had his way, and now just needed to deliver the right person so that the marriage would be a success, and his own personal reputation and increasingly shaky position at court would be reinforced. So, there's the start of a long series of discussions between the minister of Cleves, Olli Schlager, and an English party including Christopher Mont and Nicholas Wooten. Henry, of course, was very keen to see what both Amelia and Anne were like, and there was something of a Barney about that. Olle Schlager offered two recent portraits. Wooten said they were worse than useless, since they couldn't verify them, at which Olle Schlager was a bit affronted, because they'd already met them. The issue seems to have been... 
the amount of material involved in the accepted dress of the court of cleaves, i.e. in cleaves, you need a meat cleaver to get under the weight of clothes to see who was actually under it. You've seen them already, said Olly Schlager. Wooden responded, we have not seen them, for to see but a part of their faces, and that under such monstrous a habit and apparel was no sight at all, neither part of their faces nor of their persons. Olly Schlager's outrage grew. What? You had scissor I'm naked? I'm a bit afraid that Henry, had he been there, might have missed the outrage and irony and taken it for a sensible, suggested way forward. Oh, yes, I say, what a good idea. Anyway, there's toing and there's throwing. Among the negotiations was the matter of a previous negotiation to marry Anne of Cleves to the son of the Duke of Lorraine. But the English weren't particularly worried about that, so that was fine. And eventually Holbein appeared with his easel and stuff and painted both Anne and Amelia. Now, interestingly, there are various reports that came back from Cleves. Christopher Mont, he just happily compared Anne to her elder sister Sibylla, Anne excelleth as father duchess as the golden sun excelleth the silver moon. He said that everyone praiseth the beauty of the same lady as well for the face as the body. Henry was therefore quite early convinced that Anne was the one for him as the older of the sisters, and therefore he thought more appropriate for a man of his age. Hmm. Amelia, incidentally, would be the subject of many more intrigues on behalf of Cleves over the years, but never get married and die aged 68. There's a Holbein drawing of her too on the website. There's a strong family resemblance. But Nicholas Wooten, on the other hand, also sent quite detailed descriptions home, and he can't be accused of any kind of dishonesty. He described how Anne had been very strictly brought up and spoke only German, that she could neither dance, sing, nor play an instrument, since Germans regarded such accomplishments as below the dignity of the well-born. She could wield the needle well and was not given to drink. He noted that Holbein's portrait was quite lively, meaning that it was a good likeness. But coded in Wooten's language, therefore, was a warning that maybe Anne did not have the strong talents and character that Henry liked to have around him. Now, it's not 100% certain, actually, that Wooten's description even reached Henry. Cromwell may have suppressed it. Cromwell was certainly keen enough for the marriage to go ahead to support his favoured foreign policy. Interestingly, this is one of the few areas where Cromwell and Cranmer fell out. Cranmer argued against going any further with the whole marriage. He felt it was purely diplomatically driven and would not make the king happy. He said that he thought it most expedient the king to marry where he had his fantasy and love, for that would be most comfort to his grace, and that he thought that it would be very strange to marry with her he could not talk with all. Interesting. Maybe one reason why Henry always held his hand from Cranmer, why he appeared to like him, because Cranmer appeared to have genuinely put his master's interests first, personal and political. And he got the psychology right here, where Cromwell got it wrong. In the light of what happened later, I hope I won't be shouted at for saying that the evidence that Henry and Anne were unlikely to get on was there if anyone had cared to listen. Henry fell for Catherine of Aragon, a strong-minded older woman, and for Anne Boleyn, witty, intelligent, again, strong-minded. But who's to know, I guess? When he saw the portrait, Henry was anyway delighted, and the court noted that his mood improved. Cromwell won some significant concessions towards the Calais evangelicals who were released from prison. Essentially, everybody wanted this to be a success, and therefore, in common with so many such situations, 
Nobody really evaluated the likelihood of success. They all saw what they wanted to see, apart from Nicholas Wooten and Thomas Cranmer. But anyway, who was to know? Maybe they'd just hit it off. Henry therefore put Cromwell in charge of the final preparations. A group came over from Cleves and the details were agreed by October. Anne was informed and plans began for her trip to England, which we will hear all about next week. In the meantime, I hope you will give membership a thought, but more importantly, have a great week full of fun and laughter. See you next week. Bye.